3: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom
1: Sumner Show. Mm
3: And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And we're going to shift gears a little bit this hour. Uh, normally, you don't have to be a uh, rocket scientist to uh, be a guest on the Tom Sumner program, but it doesn't prevent you from being one either, as is the case with my next guest, the author of a new book called From the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist, (coughs) by um, my guest, Chester Richards. Chester, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm
2: so pleased to be here. Um.
3: Chester, I, you know the the first thing I I, I opened up with a little uh, a little knockoff on the uh, theme from the original series. Yeah, I point. caught that.
2: I caught that.
3: <laughs> and and that was in your honor, by the way, because thank uh, you. I think you're the only person who's ever been on the show who co-wrote an episode from the original series, from any of the the shows, really. Yeah. Um, which was the uh, the Tholian Web, which is considered one of the more iconic episodes of that. And um, I'm enough of a Trekkie to remember it very well. Um, but but you're not the only person who was not a regular member of the of the writing staff or the production staff of Star Trek to contribute to the writing of, a, of an episode. The Trouble with Tribbles was written by. Uh, a fan
2: oh yeah absolutely um david gerald uh, wrote the trouble with tribbles a really neat guy
3: how did you get um drawn into it and where did the idea for the tholian web come from because i have a feeling that's chester's contribution to the effort
2: well it it may very well have been but i have no no memory (laughs) of exactly who created the tholian web i know when it happened i know specifically the day it happened but uh it just happened as a, as a result of uh, collaborative conversations um it's a long sto- that that part of it is a long story but um basically i was a graduate student at, and um, my friend judy burns uh, who i'd met at the university was recently graduated and uh, she wanted to write a um, speculative script for Star Trek. And I had an interesting idea that I suggested to her, and she she asked me to um, join her in, in uh, doing a collaboration in writing that speculative script. Um, so we wrote a script. Uh, it didn't have the name Thulean Webb because that hadn't been invented as yet. Um, and we submitted the script. Um, Judy had some connections that allowed the script to be actually to be read, which is an unusual thing. And uh, we got called up to the producer's office for a story conference. What an amazing experience that was. Um, so let me give you an idea of what that was like. The producer, yeah, this was a third season of, the, of Star Trek, and they had a new producer, chief producer, that was Fred Freiberger. And, but the uh, real glue of the show, the real spark plug of the show, was uh, Bobby Justman. He had been with the uh, show as an associate producer right from the beginning. And so we were sitting in the office, in Fred Freiberger's office, and you can picture this. Uh, Fred was behind his desk. In front of the desk was a sofa where I was sitting with Judy, and the uh, story editor, uh, Arthur Singer, was sitting, also sitting on the sofa. And Bobby Justman was um, pacing back and forth in front of us, uh, reading notes that he had uh, made with respect to this particular script that they now told us oh yeah we're going to buy the script so we were real happy about that but then bobby said um... there's just a few minor changes that we want to make in the script and he started going through these changes (laughs) and both judy and i realized oh my goodness you know It's a whole new story. I mean the, we can preserve some of the elements of the original story, but basically we had to write a whole new thing. So we were getting our minds wrapped around that and then uh Freiberger looked across the desk at us and he said, Well, he says, you know, we're on a really tight schedule, he says, um, we need this um in a week. We need this script uh with all the modifications by next Friday.
1: So oh,
2: Judy man. and I <laughs> We had to write an entirely new story and script um, and get it submitted by uh, the following Friday. So we managed, uh, and we worked late into the night that particular day, and and sometime during that period when we were working uh, on on the new story is when the Tholian web concept actually got created.
3: Well, it's interesting, and and I... If I'm not mistaken, and I've watched several of the iterations of Star Trek and, and some of the current ones playing now, and I think just recently one of the new uh, Star Trek um, spinoffs um, had a run in with the Tholians and, and they started constructing a web. That, you know, it was a throwback to that, to that episode.
2: Well, I missed that completely, but uh, it's interesting to hear that.
3: Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure I, I, if it was in the the <laughs> brand new one, the Strange New Worlds, with Christopher Pike as
2: the
3: as the captain, or if it's one of the other ones, Discovery or Picard or something. But, but one of the one of the new uh, batch ran into Tholians in the course, and I I almost want to think it was the the new series, Strange New Worlds, which is in its first season and.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not following it right now, so um, this is interesting to hear. Uh, let me tell you about the web. Um, the The guy who actually did the visuals for it was a fellow named Mike Miner, really neat guy.
1: Okay.
2: And he, uh, he basically did it with stop-action animation. And I can't, uh, you know, this is not the proper place to go into the details on how he did it, but it was really an amazing um Feet of of, of uh, technical virtuosity that he he pulled off, and um, that well, and my in those
3: days, in in those days, Chester, they didn't they didn't have the shortcuts they have now.
2: No, it wasn't done by computer. It was actually done with a razor blade, being cut into film strips. Oh <laughs> and, man! And, uh, and you know, I, uh, it was it was a dazzling performance uh, because of the precision that it had to be. You know, you had to do it. And, and uh, my understanding is that it won an Emmy for special effects for that particular episode, and that really went to Mike Miner. Um, and it made his career. he became a very successful art director in Hollywood as a result of of that particular episode.
3: Well, now I feel like I have to ask, how did you go from the potato to Star
2: Trek <laughs> 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 Well, <laughs> everybody wants to know what the potato is in my my publisher says I'm not supposed to tell anybody what that is.
3: Oh, it's a spoiler alert. <laughs> <But, laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. I will say this about the potato. It was uh, very definitely a, um, a dangerous experience, That I, and I actually have some scars as a result of that. So it was an adventure on its own, but you'll have to read the book in order to find out what the potato was all about. Um, definitely a dangerous experience, no question about that. Um, And that happened uh, some years earlier. I was actually uh, uh, about to become a college student when that particular adventure happened. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, I I got my degree and then I was in graduate school when when I was working on the Star Trek uh, thing. So many years had elapsed between the potato and Star Trek. (laughs) I suppose I had some adventures in between as well.
3: Now I, I was reading a little bit about you, uh, Chester. You're a retired aerospace engineer and an inventor with 19 patents. Um, you didn't invent something to make uh, life easier for Mike Miner, did you? No, no. <laughs> That's the better. So, so he didn't have yeah. to cut up film with uh, razor
2: blades. <laughs> Well, he was—he was actually scoring in the emulsion of the film. Is how he had, how oh. he did that. Okay. He wasn't actually slicing the film completely through, just scoring it. But you know, um, as I say, it was a dazzling uh, piece of work that he did, and and it dazzles on the screen too. I mean, that's how he achieved that sparkly effect. Um, you know, he just—it it was an amazing piece of work. Um, yeah, one of the yeah, I've got a lot of inventions. I have about nineteen patents, but I have uh, more inventions than that. You don't patent stuff unless you think you somebody thinks he's going to make money of it for it, and and uh, most of those patents went to the companies I was working for.
3: Were um, you always kind of a an inventor, a tinkerer, or is that something that grew out of being an engineer? I kind of get this impression that that a lot of times engineers will run into a problem and try and figure out a way to solve it.
2: Yeah, and and most invention comes out of that. Invention comes out of, you just don't go to, to invent something for the purpose of inventing something. It just doesn't happen. Invention comes because you're faced with a problem that you don't have a good solution for. You know, you can't go to the... To the textbooks and say, Oh, yeah, here's the right answer. You have to figure out something from scratch. And in the process of figuring out something from scratch, uh, inventions are created. And, you know, sometimes they're worthy enough to to get patents, and sometimes they're, in most cases, you just, you know, it's part of the product and you don't even bother with the patent uh, aspects of it. Patents are expensive, so you don't do that very often.
3: What is it about patents that makes it so difficult and expensive? It seems like it's uh, you know like a copyright or or uh, a trademark that it's you know kind of a, a registration of sorts.
2: No, it's it's more than that. You know, in a case of a copyright, you're basically um, copying some words on paper or a design or you know or trademark is a designer something like that there's very little work involved in that in the case of a patent what you're doing is you're actually teaching the world how to do something so it's a regular course of instruction on how to do something that nobody's ever done before and so the the patent um, specification is the teaching document and then you have the issues of of all the legal involvement uh, of trying to establish a claim structure which protects you but doesn't infringe on anybody else. So there's a lot of legal stuff that's involved here as well as the teaching stuff. Um, Typical patent specification may run from a few pages to, I've I've written patents that are 30, 40 pages long. Um, A lot of work involved in, in, in a patent and there's a lot of expense in terms of the legal aspects as well.
3: Then, is uh, are the patents kept in, in kind of a library, or does it have more of a museum quality because there are models of the inventions there as well?
2: Oh, okay. Uh, and back in the 19th century, the patent office required you to produce a model so that they had a physical device. Now... Um, they don't require a physical device for two reasons. Number one, a lot of inventions are not physical. They could be, for example, uh, types of computer code um, um, and, and basic ideas of various kinds that can be, as long as they can be represented in some kind of, uh, of a device, they can, uh, an idea can be patented. Um, but the patent office doesn't require a physical product now, but the patent office does publish the invent, you know the invention um, a disclosure, which is the teaching document that is published as a, as a regular document, and it's a, available to anybody. You just you know you can go to the government and just. Uh, if you know what you're looking for, you can you can find it, and there are search engines that are available uh, to allow you to find particular types of inventions from and the patents that go along with those.
3: Hey Chester, I have to take a short break, but I want to talk sure. to you some more about uh, about inventions and. In, uh, Star Trek and potatoes and anything else we want to talk about. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Sure. All right, my I'm guest. Glad to. My guest is Chester Richards. He is the author of a new memoir from the potato to Star Trek and beyond. Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist, and uh, and we'll talk a little bit about being a rocket scientist when we come back after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be right back.
1: Hello, darling. This is Olvira, mistress of the dark, with Tom Sumner.
4: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello,
3: this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, my guest this hour, who is the author of uh, from the potato to Star Trek and beyond, memoirs of a rocket scientist. His name is Chester Richards. He joins me by phone. Chester, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
2: No, that's okay. Some good messages there. I get a lot of spam calls as well. Same sort of thing.
3: <laughs> well, <clears throat> in the in the last segment, we talked a little bit. Well, we talked a little bit about. Uh, Star Trek, and the fact that you um, were uh, a co-writer of uh, an episode of the original series called The Tholian Web, and uh, I try to get you to talk about the potato a little bit, and (laughs) your your publishers uh, are concerned that that's a bit of a spoiler alert, and I have a feeling it has something to do with a battery that went a muck or something, but we'll have to read the book and find out. But let's talk a little bit about the fact that you are a retired aerospace engineer, and how you came across that profession somewhat accidentally.
2: Well I'm not sure it was accidental. Um, When I was a little kid I started reading science fiction. I'm not sure what age, but it was pretty early. In fact I had, I was so deep into it, that I had an arrangement with the local regional library that every new novel that came in, I had first dibs on. So I got to read it and tell the librarian whether the novel was any good or not, and then they put it on the shelf for other people to read. So yeah, I was I was really um, into space travel and touring the galaxy and all the rest of that stuff when I was eight, nine, ten years old and beyond. So I, you know, I. It was natural for me to gravitate in the in the direction of physics, which is uh, one of my degrees, and engineering as well. so I have a good education in both physics and engineering um, and then of course uh, my destiny was to go into the aerospace industry that that 's the natural place to be uh, with the inclinations that I had well, does
3: that mean you then intentionally skipped an entrance? Uh, Exam in engineering, to go in oh. that
2: direction. <laughs> I don't know where you heard that story. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so I I was a student at UC Berkeley, and um I was intending to be an engineering student, but you know you you have you go through all these exams, the SATs, and everything else, and you're just examined out by the time you get to the to the university. So I went over to the School of Engineering, and I said, "Well, I'd like to be an engineer," and they said, "Fine." you have to take this exam. I said, I don't want another exam. So I looked around and it turned out the physics department did not re- did not require an exam to be a physics major. So I majored <laughs> in physics instead. <laughs> and so I got my degree, my bachelor's degree in physics, and then I went into graduate school in physics. And um, it just wasn't, I wasn't suited to become a, a research scientist in physics so i switched and there were a number of issues that that arose as a result of that so i switched over to the school of engineering and went through the engineering program which involved some undergraduate uh, classes and some graduate classes so uh and then i was working on a doctoral dissertation and i couldn't solve the problem that i had posed my for myself for the doctoral so i I bailed out and went into industry and started making money. And that was a really good deal because it opened a whole bunch of doors that would not have been available if I had stayed in the academic world. So I was much better suited for the industry.
3: Well, and I think the timing was
2: especially good for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, I, I walked into uh, a very narrow, very narrow window when uh, a guy named Bill O'Neill was doing hiring. And Bill O'Neill was, uh, he's not well known in the, uh, outside the industry, but if you know anything about the aerospace industry and you know about Kelly Johnson, um, Bill O'Neill has a similar status within the aerospace industry. And I was very lucky to get hired within, you know, plus or minus a few days of hiring. Um, so just leaving the university when I did got me a job which was absolutely ideal for me.
3: Hired where?
2: Uh, it's a company called uh, Air Neutronic. It was a division of Ford Aerospace Corporation, Ford Motor Company, uh, and was located in Newport Beach, California.
3: And, and what kinds of projects did you work on?
2: Oh, all kinds of stuff. Um, an early project that I was working on was a uh, <coughs> test flight in, in uh, subor- suborbital test flight uh, where we were doing some infrared measurements outside the atmosphere. Um, and so I got heavily involved in that for a while. And then um, it's hard to describe all kinds of stuff. I did some mathematical um, innovations um, and solved a, a, a pretty difficult problem in control systems that they were working on. And then um, went over to strategic systems and became the chief engineer for strategic systems for a while. And then Migrated back to working for uh, Bill O'Neill again in, digital, in a digital uh, design department, uh, working on um, uh, uh, various kinds of, of image processing uh, requirements and techniques.
3: Chester, as soon as I saw the sentence, Chester is a retired aerospace engineer, the first thing that popped into my mind was NASA.
2: Well... Yeah.
3: <laughs> what what was what and and I think that would be true for a lot of people. I mean, that's what they know about aerospace engineering is what they've read and and seen happen at NASA, but what what was the industry like when you got in it? I mean, we hear about Elon Musk now and Jeff Bezos and and these other guys that are spending a fortune to try and go into space, but what was, uh, who, who were the players then?
2: Well, when I first got in, my first job was um, when I had my bachelor's degree. So I started working in 1963. And, and uh, the, um, I was very fortunate, by the way, because I got hired into a group of professional inventors. I was actually trained as an inventor. I was trained to invent, uh, which is a, a skill and an art form which most people don't uh, really uh, have the opportunity to learn. And I was very fortunate in that respect. But that company specialized in aerial reconnaissance. So I was involved in, in uh, both um, aviation, you know, military aerial reconnaissance, and also we were doing, uh, starting to look at doing reconnaissance from, from space as well. So it's military-oriented, and most of, the, most of the aerospace industry is, is – uh, between I guess three three aspects there's the NASA uh, exploration aspect NASA is really an exploration organization and there is the military aspect and then there's commercial aviation so those are the three aspects most of my career has been uh, oriented towards the military end of things um, with some uh, uh, aspects towards the uh, exploration end of things as well
3: yeah, wasn't the, the, the word aerospace sort of coined to describe the, the early manufacture of uh, airplanes?
2: Uh, it, actually, it's the aviation industry, and um, I think it was probably the late 1950s people started thinking in terms of space more as, as uh, just a, an experimental adjunct and started thinking as, as a serious area of endeavor. And uh so the space part of sort of got melded with the aero part, but uh, basically the aerospace industry is the old aviation industry, which has picked up uh, some new characteristics in terms of uh, of um, space and now space is becoming dominant i mean space is a is a big deal. most people don't realize how big sp- the the space industry is, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter to a half a trillion dollars a year it's a huge industry. Just the space it's probably as big as the aviation industry, and maybe even a little bit bigger now is
3: when when people in that industry are looking out into space are which is more prevalent the idea of of maybe relocating people to other planets or is it about gathering resources from other planets and celestial bodies and trying to figure out how to get them back to Earth for energy needs and other things?
2: Um, yeah, probably all of the above. Um, obviously, Elon Musk wants to colonize Mars And I think probably colonizing the moon or something close to that would be... Well,
3: he's got a car Uh, waiting for him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was a a wonderful thing, sending an automobile out into space. That was really great. Uh, We all got a great kick out of that one.
3: Yeah, he's going to have the first used car dealership in space.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, um, it's hard to say where what's going to develop one of the things that I think that you need to to keep in mind is People do, go in, do not go into space just for the pure fun of it, okay? They go into space to make money or because there's a um, military strategic need for it or something of that sort. You have to have something that's going to draw you and or exploration. push you. And I I think yeah. there
3: are people who are well, sure. really Curiosity. committed to wanting to know what's out there and, and what does that tell us about what's here.
2: Well, you know, just think about what it was when I was a kid. You got a telescope out, and you looked at these little points of light in the sky, and that's about all you knew about anything. <laughs> you, know, you knew there were, there were a few planets out there, and there were a few asteroids other than that, and, all, and occasionally a comet would come by that you could see. Uh, but aside from that, we didn't know anything at all about the nature of the solar system that we live in, much less beyond that to the galaxy and, and distant galaxies and so on. Um, we just didn't know. And all of that discovery has happened in, in my lifetime and, and a good chunk of it in your lifetime as well. And that's amazing. I mean, it, put yourself back in the, in the 14th century. And, you know, people were running ships along the coastline of Europe, but they had no idea what was on the other side of that big ocean out, out there. You know, well, maybe a few Vikings did, but most people had no clue. And so we had a great age of exploration. In the uh, fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century, and we're we're undergoing a similar great age of exploration, except it's out in the in the direction of of the universe itself, and and it's a wonderful time to be uh, doing that. You know, to be alive and and seeing these discoveries as they come in one after another. It's an amazing time.
3: You know what's interesting about that, Chester, and I've had conversations with astronomers and others. Um, along these lines, looking back in the very early days, Copernicus and people like that, how right
2: they got it. Well, e- you these know, were, as, as, these are uh, seriously <laughs> intelligent people, and they were working, uh, they were trying to understand the world, and they had, what happened in the case of Copernicus is there was some new mathematics that was coming along. And there were some new techniques. Tycho Brahe was, was making measurements of very high precision that, he, that uh, Copernicus was able to take advantage of. Um, so, uh, And then, and, and of course, Kepler was able to work out the elliptical orbits of things, which was great. So there was, a, there was a lot of intellectual ferment during that period, and people were doing their own, using what instruments they had to do the kinds of discoveries that they were capable of doing. Um, these are first-class intellects that, that were exploring the world for us at that time.
3: But they, but they mapped some things in space without telescopes, without probes, with, uh, you know, with, without um, uh, rockets and, and all of the stuff that people use sure. now to explore. And they did remarkably well at, at mapping things out in the night sky
2: absolutely and and of course that's the first thing you do in any kind of a scientific invest in investigation is you find out what's there and you make measurements about it um you know whether you're in biology or or physics or astronomy or anything uh, a lot of the process is just figuring out what's there and and making measurements on on what's there and then trying to understand what those measurements are telling you in the case of astronomy, Tycho Brahe was the guy that that uh, made the most refined measurements. but you know going all the way back to uh, to the ancient Greeks, they were measuring the stars, and even before them in in uh, Sumer and Babylonia, they were measuring the stars with uh, substantial accuracy and they make they were able to make predictions about Earth, uh things like eclipses they could say when an eclipse was going to happen, and so on um, so that's all science but it's science with the tools that were available at the time well we just, just have much more powerful tools today
3: but as <clears throat> as we employ those more powerful tools we're finding out that a lot of the work that had already been done had been done
2: well oh absolutely you know uh, i think it was newton said that he was he was simply standing on the shoulders of giants
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great quote.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we we're, we're, knowledge piles up and each new generation comes along, they're uh maybe able to go a bit further because they're standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, and and in, in the physics community physics community that I come from, I look back at at what was going on even um a few years before I was a student and it's just amazing stuff and now uh, it's been 50 years more than 50 years since I was a student and physics has advanced enormously I'm 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 at the stage in my old age where I'm trying to learn physics but it's a new kind of physics that was created after I was in school
3: have we have we discovered much about physics yet or or is there any kind of an estimate on how much there is yet out there to know? Uh,
2: there are. First of all, let me answer the first part of that question. We know a great deal. We know, know an enormous amount. It is possible in certain circumstances to, to make predictions with 14 decimal place ac- accuracy. And, and go in the lab and make those measurements, and that's how accurate the, the measurements come out, you know? Um, so that's a highly predictive science. Physics is an amazing science from that, from that point of view. On the other hand, we, and, and so we know a great deal about the world uh, from a physics point of view. But we also know that we don't know a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, there, there's stuff out there that, that's just total mystery. You know, it really is.
3: Well, let me let me ask you this. I, I want to ask you about the book before we run out of time. And, sure. And what, um, what led you to want to share your memoir with the world? What are some of the stories? And I know you're not going to talk about the potato, but... What are some of the things that, you know, that you felt compelled to share with people? And what do you think people will get out of uh, reading about your adventures?
2: Well, um, first of all, let me tell you, I didn't intend to write a book. Uh, what it, What happened, the origin of all of this is I came home one day and my wife collapsed in front of me. She had a heart failure. And uh, it was in the process of trying to recover from that absolute devastation um, that I started to write these stories. Now, my wife, Sarah, was familiar with a lot of it. Um, You know, we had talked about various things that I had done uh, before we met. And, uh, of course, we had our adventures together after we got together. But um, I found that uh, just writing down some of the stories that I had told her, I started to recover from the the desolation of, of her passing. And it, it gave me enough comfort that I ultimately, just by writing a, a whole series of these stories, I was able to get, my, get back on my feet. Now, the stories are all true stories. They're, they are events that have happened in my life, people that I've run into along the way. I've, I've been fortunate in running into some of the most interesting people in the, in, uh, living on this planet. And so I get to tell a little bit of their stories as well. Um, and I just kept piling up these stories one after another over the years, and eventually I ran into, uh, a professional editor, and I, and she said, send me a couple of stories, so I did, and she liked what I had written, so she, she, that was H- Ina Hillebrandt, and she suggested that, uh that this all should go into a book. So we started working on the book, and that was fortuitous. That was right at the beginning of the COVID era. So I've had, had the uh, wonderful experience of staying at home doing nothing but working on the book, and, and that was kind of a salvation during that uh, very difficult period.
3: Well, good for you, Chester, because I've talked to a number of very successful writers who um, – who look back over the time they were in quarantine and thought, you know, I really should have been working, <laughs> but but I was just like a deer in the headlights, like a lot of people were, um, you know, all of a sudden being, you know, sort of quarantined was yeah uh, disruptive to say the least. Um, Chester, we are almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about about you and your work past present and future obviously the book is a great place to start it's called from the potato to star trek and beyond memoirs of a rocket scientist by chester l richards and uh, chester do you have a a a website that you'd like to share
2: yes i do Uh, and, and it's one word chester l richards just type in those sequence of letters. com will get you to the website. Um, and there's a lot of material on there. Uh, my publisher actually put the website together for me so that I don't have to do anything except uh, <laughs> admire the work that's gone into it. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a story, and there's a, one complete story called uh, uh, Bug at the Beach, and then there's some snippets from other stories. And our intent, and then um, there's some other material in there as well that might be interesting to people. Um, our intent is to keep the website up to date by occasionally uh, posting new stories, and that'll probably be, be on a, a one per month basis. These are stories that I'm currently writing, no. so they're not in the book. There's also we're we're planning a second volume of this. Uh, uh, it's already in the preliminary edit. So there's at least two books, and there may be three coming out on this uh, sequence.
3: Well, Chester, um, you don't, by chance, go to Star Trek conventions and autograph DVD copies of the Tholian Web, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You really should. But I, I, I am really just being facetious. It's a real pleasure talking with you, and I can't believe how fast the time has gone. Or I guess maybe I can. I, I kind of expected we were going to have a pretty good time, Chester. Um, but uh, thanks for spending this time with me and the listeners, and keep up the good work.
2: Well, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. And and as you say, the time has gone very, very quickly, and I've thoroughly enjoyed having a chance to chat with you, Tom.
3: Well, take care, Chester.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: That was Chester Richards. Uh Retired aerospace uh, aerospace engineer and inventor with 19 patents. Um, His uh, new book, From the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist. We'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program right after this.
1: (laughs) This is the unknown comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner show right now.
2: And now, and now too. And even now.
0: in the twilight zone hi this is ann serling and you're listening to the tom sumner program welcome to this presentation of the comedy spotlight on the tom sumner program
5: there are many shows on the air which are basically interview shows and they start out in a very austere setting Uh, there's the interviewer he sits behind a desk and in the background somewhere some figure in the news sits He's later in the show, Blinded by a Spotlight. (laughs) I'd like to present one of these shows. They start off very dramatically, something like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Wallace, Nightline. Our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner Von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. Von Werner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German Missile Program, you're now involved in our missile program. Was the fact that you were involved in the German Missile Program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part? <laughs> oh, boy, that one, huh? Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, <coughs> this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart.
1: <laughs>
5: and like on Friday night, you know, the ratesses and the raters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half-gassed, you know. And I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a fire underneath it, and I like the fire crack, and that thing'd go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody say, "What the hell was that?" Or, <laughs> "What a nut that Warner is!" Somebody want to get Warner's hat? You know, something like that. Except there's one party. The little guy walks over. He's got a little mustache and a little...
1: <laughs>
5: piece of hair falling in his
1: eyes.
5: He say hey, that uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> But uh, what, uh, what causes that thing? Eh? <laughs> I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. But well, the top of your can, see, it's, every time I do it, it jumps forward. He <laughs> uh, what do you call that thing now? I said, that's, uh, that's a <laughs> It's named after my landlord, Irving Arkett. <laughs> see, I was, I was about three months behind an aunt, you know, and comes a knock at the door, and he says, look, Warner, you know, you got to knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night, you know, because the neighbors are complaining. And don't hand me to Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? But <laughs> her landlord wanted to do about her aunt, that's his business, I want my aunt, see? I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it a <laughs> So No, I'm going to call it a rocket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes. He says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you'd have to get right on top of the guy. <laughs> him in the face or something like that with a tin can there he heard of. I think your big problem is going to be getting that close to the guy you know? he says no no what if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can see I said well we saw that but your problem there is see by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker He said, look, the reason, the reason I'm asking you all this, I'm headed to German people. Oh. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, congratulations. <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a
1: version.
5: <laughs> he says, would you like to be involved in our missile program? You know, I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know? He says, look. <laughs> He said, it's a civil service job, <laughs> 350 dollars a month. When you're 55, you go down to Button Button and forget the whole scene. <laughs> so anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is, I'm signing. Warner Von run, Warner, and every month, three fifty. there it is, like clockwork.
1: <laughs>
5: anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. The Americans come to me you know and I'm, I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that and they say look Warner you know we've seen your name on some of the requisitions and uh, how'd you like to be involved in the American missile program you know I said look actually I didn't have that much to do with it you see I mean I was at this party in Stuttgart see <laughs> they said ne- never mind never mind we need a name you now so anyway I, I, I took the job and uh, there it is 450 a month when I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. Put, uh, my brother-in-law Herman, I put him in <laughs> Well, now that's amazing because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And uh, apparently, in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or are you, what do you send a check <laughs>
6: Super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better <coughs> Now back in 1918, influenza had its run, but half the docs were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. Will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine The lesson to July. a oh, super bad, transmittable. Super bad, transmittable super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
1: From a dumb
3: Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests, including uh, retired aerospace engineer and the author of From the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist, Charles L. Richards. And before that, we talked with uh, world trade expert Nick Klein, talk about President Biden's decision to possibly roll back some tariffs that Trump imposed on Chinese goods and the effect on auto parts and other parts of uh, the American economy. And also, uh, hope you enjoyed my uh, conversation with Aaron Barnhart from uh, The Prime Timer. Um, anyway, uh, coming up, we're going to start out tomorrow talking about abortion, guns, and the Supreme Court with constitutional law professor and our SCOTUS guru,